This is a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. Go to allthews.3cr.org.au. Linda Ronstadt with Heatwave, right? Very appropriate. Yeah, very appropriate. God, I hate this heat. <laughs> We've got a guest in the studio. Never a Crime is a midsummer photo exhibition by Lisa White and Alice's Garage that features men who had their convictions for consensual sex with other men expunged by the Victorian government. The exhibition's coordinator, Catherine Barrett, joins us in the studio. Welcome, Catherine. I'm pleased to be in this cool space. Thank you very much. <laughs> it's lovely in here. Hi, Thank Catherine. you so much for coming. Tell us about some of the stories of criminal convictions the exhibition covers. Uh, Well, the exhibition actually started off looking at men who had experienced expungement. We got feedback that that men who who had been through the expungement process had found it absolutely cathartic um, but the take-up of the expungement scheme was really quite uh, low, really? surprisingly low. And so we were getting feedback from a number of gay elders saying, what's this about? And we need to do some work raising awareness of how powerful the expungement scheme is. And that's the kind of impetus for the exhibition. Wow. So in the exhibition, uh, there are men wearing masks and telling their stories. Could you tell us a little bit about some of those? Well, what we did in response to this feedback that people weren't taking up the expungement scheme is we said we would like to speak to men who've been, had their convictions expunged Mm -hmm. to hear about their experiences. And there was absolutely deafening silence. And so we went back to uh, older gay men and we said, well, what's that about? And they said, there's still a lot of shame around homosexuality and bisexuality. And what we need to do is we really need to challenge that shame. And we've got law reform. We've had an apology from the Premier, Daniel Andrews. But what we really need to do is, is say to gay and bisexual men that there is no shame in being gay and bi. And, I mean, a lot of people, that would be a surprise for a lot of people. They would think that, you know, we're way past that, but we're right. not. So what we did was we invited gay and bisexual men to come in and, and sort of start off the process. Didn't have to have had a criminal conviction, an unjust criminal conviction, but we invited them to come in and reflect on historical experiences and then to talk about their own sense of pride in their own sexuality mm. and then to make a mask representing their experiences. And then Lisa took a series of portraits of the men wearing or holding their masks as a way of raising awareness and really sending a message to men who have been unjustly convicted um, that that there is no shame and that you have the right to be here and that you have the right to have your sexuality celebrated. What are the ages of some of the men? So the men were, the youngest man was 26 and the oldest one was 86. And it was amazing watching the men working together. The Mm. uh, 26-year-old had been out three years longer than the 86-year-old. The 86-year-old has been out for three years. Wow. Uh, And so this diversity of experience was amazing. But across the board, across the workshops, the men said to us that there is still that, you know, even for the 26-year-old, he's saying there is still that sense of, it's handed down this sense of shame that we feel that, you know, that there's there's still a sort of a pressure to act straight Right. Um, and and there's not that real sense of pride in, and particularly around the postal vote, you know, that's that was accentuated. Some of the arguments around, 
you know, homosexuality were really from the 1950s and 1960s, these very old arguments. Um, and so it was really around exploring that and then saying, well, what about, what does pride mean to you? And so we asked the men what pride meant to them. And then they, mar- they made these masks as kind of, a, a, you know, around a, a sense of strength and this pride in who they are. And so the portraits of the men in their masks are beautiful. And we've asked the participants in the workshops as well to send a message, to send their messages of support to men who are unjustly uh, convicted. And so the exhibitions, these series of pride masks and these messages to men who were unjustly convicted. And we're hoping what that does is it sends the message to, particularly to older men, but middle and mature age men, um, that you have nothing to be ashamed of. Uh, and, and pride is the opposite of shame. Uh, and in fact, what we're inviting people to do is to really be proud of who they are. And, and we want to raise awareness of the expungement scheme because the men who have been through it have said it's cathartic. I'm fascinated mm. by the 86-year-old. Can you tell us a bit more about his experience and what evoked him to come out so late in life? Was it mm. linked to the marriage debate, for example? Uh, David is an extraordinarily beautiful 86-year-old man. <laughs> and if you get on the Alice's Garage website and you go to the Never a Crime page, you can see David with a... with a, There's a clip a, of him? with the, film, yeah. Yeah, yeah. There's a film of David He's with his mask. He's really gorgeous. Yeah. It's so, like a little YouTube clip thing. So, so David thought as a younger man that he might have been gay and he was in the armed forces and he talks about what it was like to be gay in the armed forces and thinking that he was the only one. Uh, And then he got married and he had children and he said that his sense of responsibility was that, you know, he started to realise that he was gay. But he said, well, as an honourable man, um, there was nothing he could, you know, he'd made a commitment to his wife uh, and he would stay with his wife for as long as they were together and both alive. And she died when he was 83. So that was the catalyst for him rethinking. That was when he came out. Uh, and, and it's absolutely joyous to be in David's presence. He's speaking on Sunday. And, you know, he talks about that, that there was, and Jamie Gardner, who's a, you know, a fabulous gay man and, um, and act, a lawyer and activist as well too, you know, they collectively they talk about the laws were intended to shame men. That's how men were controlled. That's how gay and bisexual men were controlled, by this sense of shame. That's what the laws were intended to do Mm. and so this sense of pride and David talks about it too you know he holds up his mask and he said you know he talks about that sense of shame and silence and having to repress who he was and then just he finishes by saying I like being gay (laughs) which is absolutely beautiful out of the mouth of an 86 year old man. Mm. In the aftermath, so Daniel Andrews' apology speech, which is relatively unique, right? That hasn't really happened in any other states. I understand it's happened in Western Australia. Oh, okay. But it was um, a world first, apparently. With it was a world in a, first. In a world yeah. And, and yeah. it will be unsurpassed. The, the emotionality, the commitment, the authenticity of that apology mm. will be unsurpassed ever in history. I have no doubt. And mm. the apology in some of the other states and territories, perhaps I shouldn't name them, Oh, um, why pe- not? Oh, okay. So in WA, some of my colleagues said the apology was there, but there wasn't that sense that it was, you know, that that felt sense of it. It was just Daniel going through Andrews, business. Mm. That, and so Daniel Andrews's apology, you know, I cry every time I hear it. Wow. And it's, even, even now, a couple even of years now, later. Even now. But you know what? The laws were changed and then the healing must happen. And, and that's what Daniel Andrews did with that apology. He started the healing process. And I think sometimes we look around and we see gay men are everywhere and they're fabulous and we think they're all healed. <laughs> Not the case. No. There, there is a need 
to really and and one of my friends was saying to me yesterday that in online dating um uh, websites and apps there is still a uh, um people looking for straight acting and you think well what is that about or like, just your average so, guy it's internalized homophobia i think and what is wrong with gay acting like what mm. is wrong with somebody who looks who looks and acts what's well, the shaming culture yeah. that yeah. you referred yeah. to isn't it? i think that's mm. a big part of it how prevalent do you think then that you know internalized shame is amongst well, the lgbt IQA plus community. Well, I, th- I think before this project, I thought, because the work I do is mostly with LGBTI elders, and so I thought it was something that was really because of, uh, you know, elders have lived most of their lives with uh, laws and different societal experiences. But in the workshop, the 26-year-old was saying he felt it, and the 30-year-olds were saying they felt it, like growing up in a country town, that sense of feeling that they knew who they were but didn't have a voice, felt that it wasn't okay. Uh, and so I think that this is something that doesn't even have to be explicitly articulated to be actually felt and passed down through generations. And I think online mm. culture contributes to it around ageism and racism and body image images, body image issues very much. So if you're coming from a country town and then you're coming to the city, don't know people in the online world, your community, I imagine you'd be thinking, why the hell did I come out? You know, why would I want to? It's very confronting, I think, for a lot of people and very shame-basing. We have, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. One of my friends was telling me uh, last night about um, one of his friends who's an older man who had uh, recently had a haircut and had come away from the haircut really distressed because he thought he looked like a gay man. And I'm thinking, oh, well, really? why, why is it shameful to look like a gay man? Even now, after even the whole now, even now. legitimacy of the postal vote and all mm. of that. There, I think there's a societal reshaping that needs to happen. I mean, we saw... Uh, majority, yes, in the community with the postal vote, but it's actually about ourselves. For all of us in LGBTI communities, we've got to start to heal ourselves. And so this is this is a time for gay and bisexual men mm. to begin that process of healing. And the workshops, you know, we piloted them. We were very tentative, but, but they were very, very powerful. So we're doing another four um, this year, in the first part of this year, uh, and, and, and they've been incredibly powerful. Like the men have walked away very reverently holding their masks. So their masks have really become representations of their sense of pride. And they get to keep the mask? They keep the mask. They keep mm. the, I mean, some of them have got Smarties on them and cactuses in them. Nice. And so they, I, I guess they won't last very long. But the, but the portraits, Lisa White, the social photographer, her portraits are so beautiful. I'm so lucky to work with Lisa. She, she captures the spirit of a revolution in her photographs. And she and I have been uh, working on a number of LGBTI projects with elders. And I'm so lucky to work with Lisa because, you know, I can tell people uh, that change is important, but Lisa takes a photograph and people see it and then Mm. they feel it. And that's why the exhibition is so exciting. Mm. And Midsummer, of course, Midsummer. I mean, Lisa. It's a showcase of exhibitions, isn't it? And, And queer culture. They are amazing. They are amazing. Lisa and I are unfunded. We're doing this because we want social change. And so we're unfunded and we weren't going to do an exhibition because exhibitions are very expensive. Midsummer Festival said they would partner and support the exhibition. The Abbotsford Convent have as well too. So we're incredibly grateful to them for that support. I wanted to ask you about compulsive behaviour and whether shame inflicted on gay people, especially when growing up, uh, can lead to compulsive behaviour. I have to say I'm out of my depth answering that. That would be okay. the responsible thing to do. Right, um, okay. But I've got to tell you that um, 
that I guess I guess there's a link between the conversations we've been having and your question that mm. that I think that that shaming of people and our historical experiences have shaped who we are and have shaped our behaviours. And um, you know, I was speaking to someone on the way in here who was saying to to me, uh, "This is a woman my age, so in her late fifties," and she was saying that the postal vote. Uh, has just absolutely knocked her for six, and she's not recovered yet. And so I think that. Did the, she say why? Uh, I've got to be really careful not to identify her. But a, <laughs> a number of people have talked about fractured family relationships. So yep. a number of of my buddies have talked about there has been historically been tensions in their families, uh, and those tensions have have been exacerbated around the postal vote. And the fact that on social media you turn the radio on, perhaps not three CR. But if you turn on other radio stations and you get, you're just confronted by this mm. barrage of LGBTI phobic comment, and even though we got a yes, I think there are still a lot of us that that are carrying around some hurt, and that needs to be healed. And that's, a, 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 I guess, a parallel with this particular project is that um, these historical laws and this these historical behaviours by institutions like the churches and by medicine have had a legacy uh, mm. and that legacy needs to be acknowledged, which is what Daniel Andrews did, and now they need to be healed, which is why we're doing this exhibition and this project. Mm. Well, Alice's Garage, so you're working with, it's collaboration between Midsummer and Alice's Garage. So tell us about Alice's Garage and the work you do there. So so the project's actually a collaboration with Lisa White, the social photographer, and Alice's Garage and Midsummer. And Alice's Garage was a project um, I set up about two years ago. I left my academic job because I wanted to create um, more social change. So somebody said the other day, I'm a pracademic. Wow. <laughs> that practical I haven't thing. heard that before. It's yeah, fabulous. Like it's a great it. word. Yeah. Uh, so it was set up to empower LGBTI elders. So in the past, I've done a lot of work uh, around LGBTI inclusive services for older people. But this is working directly with LGBTI elders um, to empower them and it's the most beautiful project in the world um, and I get I have a lot of LGBTI elders who come to me and say we need to do something about uh, and so what we do is we build up a project co-design co-production and then co-leadership so they lead projects so this this actually so Never a Crime came from Jamie Gardner who's the um, the lawyer and who's an absolute uh, ex-3CR presenter actually He's what? An oh. ex-3CR presenter oh, in the 90s. Right? Yeah, he did a law show. Oh. Jamie, Jamie Gardner, is a, he's a legend. He's a legend. And so he, he said, he said the expun- we need to, to increase awareness of the expungement scheme and we also need to heal the, 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 the shame. We need to heal the shame. And so we said, well, well let's do this. Uh, and so, so Ro Allen's a project patron and Jamie and Anna Brown from the Human Rights Law Centre are speaking uh, in two weeks' time at an in-conversation. Yeah, tell us about that because Anna from the Human Rights Law Centre is going to be facilitating a discussion with some of the the men from the project. Who's going to be there? Uh, So we're hoping it'll be Jamie Gardner and Anna Brown and they'll be talking about the expungement scheme. Any of the participants who had their convictions expunged, will they be talking? We have a call out for men who have been unjustly convicted or who have participated in in the expungement scheme to participate in the event because we really want to raise awareness of... They're talking about it being cathartic. We really want to raise awareness of that so that, you know... And we, we thought initially, oh, we, we're trying to get more men to participate in the expungement scheme. No, we want more men to be aware of it 
and how powerful it is. Because as you said, with the shame and also, I guess, the internalization of issues over many years, it's hard for people to come forward, as you said. Well, some and speaking publicly about it would be very confronting, I imagine. Yeah, yep. And and there is a sense too that some people uh, are saying, you know, just leave it alone. You know, in the past, uh, it's in the past. But actually, what others are saying to us is actually not in the past. We are walking around with it in our bodies Caring. on a daily basis, and it's time to heal that. And healing the process that we're hearing is that talking about it. Um, and pride is the opposite of shame and that this is a process for mm. for um, letting go of the shame. I want to tell what was the name of the 86-year-old gentleman again that you mentioned David, before? David, beautiful David. David. How, have people, how have his family responded? I'm assuming he he had children, you said. Yes, how, yes. How has the response been to uh, I haven't asked his... him about his, um, the response from, from his children actually. But the response, I mean, I'm assuming he has friends and colleagues and people from his previous life when he wasn't out. Has it been mostly positive? He's, he, he's not out to some of the groups, the um, groups that he's involved in, but he is marching in Pride March. So he uh, mm-hmm. is a very proud man. Um, with the work that I do with LGBTI elders, a number of LGBTI elders that I speak to, uh, kind of can't compartmentalise their lives. So they have an LGBTI kind of a life. And a straight life. And a straight mm. life. Or they have family members, adult children, and maybe they've either transitioned as uh, later in life or they've come out later in life uh, and their adult children don't necessarily approve. Mm. Uh, and so for so some... So it's easy to leave it alone or, as you say, compartmentalise it. Well, some of the trans and gender diverse people that I work with are telling me that they're not allowed to be female, for example, uh, in front of their children or it's their grandchildren. It's very disempowering, isn't it? Uh, and what I'm finding as well, too, that at that, that point where uh, old LGBTI people aren't autonomous, so if they're sick or dying, um, that sometimes their adult children are, are taking away their right to, to their trans and gender diversity and uh, the lack of recognition of their same-sex relationships. So there is a, is, there is a, a, ch- a real challenge around... Because that impedes the healing on. process. Yeah, mm. absolutely, absolutely. So we've got to do some work with families as well too. It sounds to like elder abuse. It is elder El- abuse. Elder abuse. Elder abuse. Yeah. Absolutely it is elder abuse. And we need to do some education of family members to show them, to, to model respectful relationships. So... Taking um, LGBTI elders who have respectful relationships with their families, maybe doing some films, some stories, and then putting that out there as a kind of a way of modelling or giving permission to families or showing them how to be respectful. Because if you think if somebody's an LGBTI phobic person and all they're tuned into is LGBTI phobia, they may have got permission through the postal vote to, 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 to continue to be LGBTI phobic. You know, they may not have picked up on that positivity and so there, there is that permission giving sometimes um, that means that respectful relationships aren't experienced by LGBTI elders in particular. Mm-hmm. Now we need to tell our listeners where to go and see Never a Crime and Alice's Garage's work as well. Alice's so. Garage, get on and have a look alicesgarage.net and go to projects and then Never a Crime and the exhibition's on this Sunday at the Convent Gallery in Abbotsford from five o'clock, join us for some bubbles and to write your message of support to um, gay and bisexual men who are unjustly convicted. And then look at on the website, look out for the next four workshops as well that have been funded by the City of Melbourne. We're grateful for their support as well. Mm, amazing. 
Catherine Barrett from Never a Crime, thank you so much for coming into 3CR this afternoon. It's been great chatting. Thank you. Thanks, Catherine. Don't, uh, I was going to say, like, get on that cool tram that you were on before with the aircon. Thank you. Oh, it's brutal. <laughs> Thanks, yeah. It was do hot it, chip.
Want to support 3CR's diverse and independent voices? Well, it's not too late, and we still need your support. Donate now by calling 9419 8377 or donate online at www.3cr.org.au or post us a cheque or money order to Post Office Box 1277, Collingwood 3066.
beautiful. The Cranberries. Uh, Delors. Del- yeah, who passed a few days ago, 46 yep, years old. In London. Terrible story. Yes, it is 4.38 and you're listening to In Your Face on 3CR with Yvette and James. And a hepatitis A epidemic has broken out among men who have sex with men and the Victorian government is offering free vaccinations for men who have sex with men and people who have injected drugs in the past year. On the line, we have Melanie Eagle from Hepatitis Victoria. Welcome, Melanie. Thanks, James. Hi, Melanie. Melanie, how is hepatitis A transmitted? Let's start with that. Sure, so down to the basics. Hepatitis is a viral disease that affects the liver. So for hepatitis A, and there are different strands, for hepatitis A, uh, the transmission route is essentially fecal-oral route, uh, largely or mostly. So it's the ingestion of foodstuffs largely that have involved E. coli or fecal matter. So how easily transmitted is it? Uh, it's... Depends really on the circumstances in which one is, uh, I guess, living or, or where one's been. So in some communities, and it's um, often actually, it's more commonly found in um, overseas circumstances where you know people live with poor sanitation. That's where it's more common. Uh, so that's why it's pretty unusual to have uh, a distinct outbreak in you know modern Victoria circumstances. Are certain people at more risk of hepatitis A? Yes, they are. And as I say, generally speaking, uh, it has been um, people from overseas countries or people who travel. But there are other priority populations. And at times, too, it can be shared between people. So once a person has uh, got hepatitis A, and while it's uh, acute, it can be then transmitted to others that they are, you know, their their families and friends and things. So it can be circulated amongst a particular cohort once some people are uh, infected with the virus. So what are its symptoms? Uh, So the symptoms uh, can be pretty harsh. They do vary. They can affect people or when they be more severe when they're older and, and less when they're younger. But the symptoms are generally uh, fever, so there might be nausea and vomiting, increased temperature, sweating, things like that, muscle and joint aches, loss of appetite, uh, diarrhoea, and jaundice, which you've possibly heard of, uh, the yellowing of the skin and the eyes. Now, there is an outbreak occurring in Victoria. Are there similarities between this outbreak and the ones identified in, well, there's many countries of Europe and also the US? Uh, No, I think the outbreaks, you know, they'll vary from uh, time and place. uh, And we're very lucky to have a responsive, sophisticated health system that's able to track particular outbreaks, get to understand who is infected and... um, reduce the risk accordingly and that's exactly what's happened here and how the Victorian government has responded. Mm. So uh, they noticed an increase in notifications of hepatitis A really over the latter part of 2017. Uh, it's a notifiable disease which is you know, uh, not all condition which is something uh, we don't commonly perhaps understand, but what that technically means is that healthcare providers and pathology services are obliged to notify the health department mm-hmm. of any cases. So through that, uh, because of that, 
the department uh, was informed about uh, the uh, what we're calling an outbreak, I guess, and they decided then to investigate further and um, to track it down. And then that's when they found that for this particular cluster, there's uh, been that higher prevalence amongst men who've had sex with men and people who inject. And that's why they've then gone that further step, as you said in your introduction, and provided free vaccination for people this year who are either in, the, in either of those categories, men who have sex with men, or people who have injected within the last 12 months. So how many cases have been identified in Victoria in recent months? Uh, my understanding is the latest data that we're talking about are over 30 confirmed cases and then another dozen or so possible cases. And can you tell us a bit about the cohort? I mean, um, was it around a community of men who have sex with men who also inject that this uh, epidemic is kind of, you know, developed within? It, there have been, it's not necessarily a kind of co-activity. So uh, almost all cases have reported men who have, have sex, you know, sexual activity. And some of those, a uh, smaller proportion of those have been people who inject drugs and some have been people who inject drugs separately, uh, not involved with MSM. Mm. So quite a number of visited uh, uh, sex on-premises venues uh, or reported using dating apps or websites. So it's, really, it's the two different cohorts and there's been some overlap. Is hepatitis C a factor here too? I mean, how do you know how many of those infected with hep A uh, also have hepatitis C? Uh, well, I think it is good that you raise actually hepatitis C and also perhaps I'll take the opportunity to raise hepatitis B because it's often confusing for people. Mm. It's a fairly poorly understood uh, condition, viral hepatitis. There are these different forms of viral hepatitis and there can be co-infection as you've just raised and really in terms of prevalence there's many more people in Australia who are affected by hepatitis B and C and actually it's different because it can go on to be chronic and have a a long-term impact on the liver and you know lead to liver cancer etc. A difference with hepatitis uh, A is that it's only acute and once you've had it and you've cleared uh, then it doesn't return. So that they are different, but mm. they can, there can be that co-infection. I haven't heard of any data being collected yet about um, co-infection rates, specifically for this latest outbreak. I think it's all fairly new, and that would involve a bit of uh, delving down deeply into the kind of individual circumstances, and I don't think that's occurred, but... There is a need for people to be informed generally about hepatitis A and B and C, and there can be that risk of co-infection. Would you say of the three that hepatitis A is transmitted more easily, but seems like it's probably the less pernicious of the three? It's certainly the less pernicious. I'll take the opportunity to perhaps point out that uh, we have actually six Victorians die per week of hepatitis B and C. Nobody dies of hepatitis A. It's clearing. It can be they can be severe. Those symptoms that we discussed before and disabling, but mm. it's clear it clears, and you don't have long term then liver damage. But hepatitis B and C, 
often go on to be chronic. They're diagnosed late, so the symptoms aren't obvious. They're not acute like hepatitis A in the way we're talking about. Then hepatitis B and C, it's often undetected, goes on, very damaging, and uh, as I say, can be deadly and is currently very deadly, and so there's lots of awareness raising needed for those conditions too. And of course, hepatitis C in conjunction with HIV can be very debilitating and also disease progression can be very quick, I imagine. Well, that's right. So the co-infection with HIV is worth pointing out because uh, it is more debilitating when you have, say, HIV plus hep A. So often the symptoms will be worse, uh, same with hep C. So, uh, and you'd certainly be needing to, you know, get under good care. And I, I guess our uh, strong message here is for anybody at risk, so in these communities, people who've injected recently or currently injecting men who have sex with men, because of this uh, current outbreak, and generally speaking, to manage your health, go to your GB. A GP or uh, you know your closest sexual health service get tested, and where you need to get vaccinated and get into care. Mm. And uh, the positive message here, I mean, it's really fantastic. The, the government's made hepatitis A vaccine free for both of those uh, populations. It's free and it's safe and it's highly effective. Does that free vaccination program also include Hep A booster shots? Uh, yeah, I was about to say. <laughs> yeah, well, so. Uh, it's two shots that are uh, recommended uh, to have. So it's, uh, it's the course of two vaccines. It's, uh, I guess, the doctors that can test to see whether you're actually adequately covered. Perhaps you only had one. Perhaps it was a certain period of time ago. So they'll be able to test to see whether you do need uh, more uh, and similarly whether you're at risk for you know, hepatitis B uh, vaccine available for that. And for hepatitis B, uh, while it's not vaccine preventable, there is now this cure that people might have heard about too. So there's action you can take to get, you know, this wheel in hand and uh, happily there's uh, subsidised vaccine available too. How quickly does the vaccine take effect? Uh, My understanding is it's within... well, actually, no, I think it's it's within 12 to 28 days that people actually who have been exposed to hepatitis A, the symptoms might uh, show, but I'm not sure. I think it's pretty uh, fast effective and effective, but I'm afraid I'm not, I don't have that clinical expertise, and that your GP will tell you that. But I think the, perhaps the flip side to emphasise is act quickly. Mm. Like, don't continue to expose yourself to potential risk uh, and wait and hope act quickly, get vaccinated, it's free, uh, it's safe, uh, it won't be harmful to get vaccinated and you'll be safe. Mm. Melanie Eagle, thank you so much for talking to us today on 3CR. Much appreciated. No, thanks for the opportunity. Thanks, Melanie. Thanks, Melanie. Thank Cheers. You. Bye. Bye. Melanie Eagle there from Hepatitis Victoria talking about the Hep A epidemic outbreak mm. here in Victoria. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.